Hello, family, and welcome to Kingwood Methodist. In John 4.23, Jesus states that a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. As we gather at church and open God's Word, we are not just coming together for the sake of gathering, but also to learn the truth of God and how we can grow to love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. As we continually surrender our lives to the Word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, we become the type of worshipers our Heavenly Father seeks. Let's dive in together. I'm going to invite the congregation to be seated for just a moment so I can use some visuals to give you a context for the text. So you can be seated for a moment to relax and I want to let you know there are two things that happen according to the gospel records that are north of the Sea of Galilee. So north of the Sea of Galilee in a two days walk is a place known as Caesarea Philippi. In Jesus' time, this would be what it looked like. And the two events that happen are what we're going to read about in Matthew chapter 16 and that what I believe is the location of the transfiguration many scholars do is Mount Hermon, which is another several days journey north of Caesarea Philippi. But there's only two things that happen. And so Jesus comes to this place. What is this place of Caesarea Philippi? Well, like um, all of civilization, where there is water, there is life. Caesarea Philippi was a place from which the waters of Mount Hermon would be a natural spring and flow out. On the screen in front of you, what you see is actually a rendering there. This is what it looks like today. That is known as the gate of hell. So flip back one, Jason. On the far left of your screen is known as the temple of Pan. And it was known as the gate of hell. Sacrifices, human sacrifices were made at the back of the temple and bodies were thrown into this abyss known as the gate of hell. Okay, so the NIV translation of Matthew will be the gate of Hades. Hell, Hades, same thing. It's tissue Kleenex. Okay? Now, so this is what it looks like today. And this picture, the next slide, this is what's taken in the rainy season. You can see there's a little more water there. And then what does it look like in the dry season? Well, in the dry season, this is what it looks like. And you can tell it's a little more parched, a little whatnot. But just to zoom back for a second, imagine Jesus has taken the disciples to this place, it, it looks fairly much the same. The architectural things here, the, the walls, the, the flow of the water, that's changed a little bit. But generally, this would have been the view, except they would have seen the Temple of Pan, the Temple of Zeus, and Jesus takes the disciples there for one thing. So as he's going to Caesarea Philippi, he's engaging the disciples. He's asking them, listen for the dialogue. You're going to feel like you're at a Texas a and football game. Sorry, all you Longhorns, but you've got to win over Baylor on Saturday in the basketball court, so you'll be okay, right? We're going to stand for just a moment because we stand for the reading of the gospel, and it's about this encounter. You also will find a shorter version of this in Mark chapter 8. But I'm going to use the Matthew text. And before I read the Matthew text, I especially want you to listen to the encounter that happens between Jesus and Peter. And I'm going to pause for some inflection. So get in your mind. The disciples are together together. Everybody would have known it's the backdrop. It's the gate of hell. Everybody would have known that. There's no accident that whatsoever. I think Jesus took the disciples to this place for this purpose, for this reason, for this context, and for this text. 
So in respect of the gospel, I ask you to stand as you're able. We're going to read out of Matthew chapter 16. It'll be verses 13 through 28. Hear now the word of the Lord. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Sort of an, a, a Jesus version of a survey monkey. And they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I will tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Verse 21. From that time on, they're still in Caesarea Philippi, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And our prayer throughout this series following the text of Scripture will be John Wesley's Covenant Renewal Prayer. The words are on your screen, and I'll invite you to pray with me together. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed by thee, or laid aside for thee, exalted for thee, or brought low for thee. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine and I am thine, so be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Last week we used Wesley's Covenant Renewal Prayer, and in many Methodist congregations, this is a singular standalone day, whether it be the first or second Sundays within the new year. But Dan Benedict wrote this. He said, A covenant covenant renewal service is not a seeker service. There is no such thing as covenant renewal light. 
And I like that imagery, and so as we as a pastoral staff really wrestled with what would help us in this new year, how do we refine our hearts in the words of the hymn to sing God's praise? How do we sharpen our ability to see, hear, and respond to the work of the Holy Spirit to follow God's leading to do what is God calling us to do? And what we believe we do is we, we live more into this covenant renewal for an expanded period of time. And so this series of spiritual detoxing is looking at the biblical references, but taking this prayer as the lens into the scripture. And what we talk about today is going to be about a sense of surrender, a sense of giving your life over, a sense of recognizing in a culture and in a world that constantly encourages you to simply focus on yourself, almost as if it's encouraging you to say, you deserve that apple, take it. Rather than saying, is there a transcendent truth that is external to us that we would be called to live our lives according to. And in the work of the church, we believe, yes, that is the scriptural witness that God has created, has redeemed humanity, and in the words and pages of scripture, cast for us the vision of what it means to both accept Christ and to live in Christ and to live as Christ would have us live in the world today. And there are places of tension, and the greatest place of tension is a sense of surrender. We live in a culture which increasingly tells us you deserve control. You should be able to do whatever you want as long as it doesn't offend anybody. It's even bled into the sense of which how you understand yourself and who you are can be whatever you want to be. And I would tell you, this is not the message of Scripture. This is not the message of the church. You have been fearfully and wonderfully made, and God does not make junk. But rather than change identity because you can't figure out culture, we want to bolster in our children and you to say, you're fearfully, you're wonderfully made. You're a magnificent creation of God. What is God calling you to be and to become? To encourage them to stand firm in the faith, to claim that identity, and to live as a distinct people in the world. Rather than simply listening to a message of the world, and there is sort of a tension that exists between the aspirational hope that we become and the identity that we are. We should always be in the process of becoming what God calls us to be. So I've got a word today about this text, and that is this. About this text, we're not going to unpack what was Jesus talking about to Peter when he said, hey, whatever you bind on earth is going to be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is going to be loosed in heaven. A loose interpretation of that is simply the understanding that we really do have the ability to proclaim God's forgiveness. What I want to zoom in and circle in on is the incredible dynamic that happens when Peter is at one moment, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, and in the next moment, rebuking. And the word in the Greek for rebuke is censor. Peter goes from saying you're the Christ to censoring Jesus. Now, that doesn't sound like a life of surrender. And Jesus even says, get behind me, Satan. It reminds me of the joke that's told about a husband and wife having gone through financial peace, agreed. Any major decision they would make financially would always be in agreement. And yet one day, a rather expensive item of clothing shows up. Cost about $500 and... and, and and the husband said, hey, I thought we talked about this. You know, I mean, I, I went past the Titleist Golf Club. You know, we, we're going to make major decisions. We're going to make this decision. I mean, we talked. Would you pray about this? I mean, would you, would you really say this? And she said, I did. I, I prayed on this. I listened to this, whatnot. And I, I even used that phrase, get behind me, Satan. And then I heard that voice, oh, girl, that dress looks really good from back here. You deserve it. <laughs> 
Now, that's a playful kind of thing, right? But how do we discern where God's calling us? We do that in community. So I am delighted you're in worship today, but I really want to challenge you. Do you have that small group of individuals, whether it be in a Sunday school class, whether it be in a band group, whether it be in a circle group, whether it be in a men's group, whether it be in a service group, do you have that place where people will hold you accountable and help you refine how you can hear the call of God in your life. That's really important. And when it comes to a sense of surrender, it's amazing to know that Jesus stays connected to Peter even when he gets it wrong, even when he tries to censor Jesus. Now what's amazing about this text is, there at Caesarea Philippi, they're at the gates of hell. And what Jesus is saying to Peter is, you are right, God's revealed this to you. You're not Simon anymore. Your name is Peter. And the play in the Greek is overlooked because Simon means pebble and Peter means rock. So it's a huge rock. I had one tour guide in the Holy Land who suggested that this encounter happened above the gate of hell and that that fortress of a mountain cliff was the teaching moment for Peter that maybe Jesus said, you're not just Simon of pebble, you're Peter, like this foundational rock. I don't know how that happened. All I know is the context was the gates of hell. And in this gate of hell, the, will not prevail against the church. Now, here's the important thing to know about the word church. The word church in the Greek, it's mentioned here, is not the word church that we use. The word church that we think of as a building is from the Greek word kirche, and it wasn't developed until the mid-centuries. The word that's used in the Greek here is ekklesia. It means God's gathered people. And so imagine for a moment what's happening at the beginning of Peter's learning to surrender and acknowledge who Christ is. He names him correctly, and Jesus says, Peter, on you, I'm going to build this gathering of what we do. Can you see it? In, in, in the gate of hell's over, maybe Jesus' shoulder, or, or maybe he's, he's casting their vision. He's like, you know what we're going to build together? We're going to build this gathering of God's people. It's going to be all of this amazing stuff. And, and you know what? Even the gate of hell can't prevail against it. The thing that was most feared by everybody will kneel to the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, upon whom every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Hallelujah. Bring in the, the hallelujah chorus. We're ready. Close church. Do the benediction. But that's not where Jesus stops. Jesus stays connected to Peter when Peter can't hear the glorious statement for the first time, be raised from the dead. And he tries to rebuke Jesus. But Jesus stays connected to Peter. Now this is the same Peter, the same Peter, who will be with Jesus in ministry. This is the same Peter who will go on to deny Jesus three times in the shadows. This is the same Peter whom Jesus will pursue at the Sea of Galilee and restore. Friends, hear this gospel truth and message. Jesus will not stop pursuing us. That even as we learn to surrender and at times fail to surrender our lives, Christ will continue to pursue us. I want to use two imageries in the text to wrap this up to give you the best imagery of what I think it means to live this prayer in a way that says, God, just put me where you want, write me where you want, put me to doing, put me to suffering, let me be employed, let me be aside, let me be exalted, let me be brought low, let me be full, let me be empty, let me have all things, let me have nothing. This sense of full surrender, these imageries. First, the first imagery I give you is 
of a little cute puppy dog. Uh, around the holidays at times you see people who actually will get dogs and well when you have a cute little puppy dog a lot of people love their lab until they can choose something right a chocolate lab or black lab or yellow lab or gray lab but but then the the lab has to at some point or any dog has to be what housebroken right and I would suggest to you this phrase, you can't housebreak Jesus, but oh, do we try. We treat Jesus more like a puppy dog. We want to crate him when times are inconvenient for the truth that, that challenges us because we don't want him to be Lord of all our life. We want to put him in the back room at times and put down some newspaper and say, hey, don't come out. We got guests coming over. I don't want you embarrassing us in front of people. Stop scratching the door, Jesus. Stop scratching the jaw of my heart. Quit chewing on things. I'm comfortable with this. We want to housebreak the Savior. We want to domesticate God so that God doesn't challenge us. God doesn't stretch us. Friends, you're never going to housebreak Jesus. But you can let your life be conformed and molded if you will have a sense of surrender. And it's the scariest thing you're ever going to do. Because you're going to have to let go. You're going to have to let go of control of your life, which is the number one thing that we like. I can remember when our son called back during basic training and he was talking to Sean and I was overhearing because sons call their mamas, not their daddies, the first call. Trained him well, didn't I? <laughs> and he said, Mom, I just feel like everything's out of control. And she said this magnificent phrase, oh honey, control is an illusion. That's a great phrase, isn't it? And she said, I just don't know where my life's going. She said, well, honey, you're in the army. You'll know where you're going when you get off the bus and you look up and see what the sign says. <laughs> but how do we learn to that surrender? How do we learn to give away that sense of control in our prayer life, in our daily life, in service to others? We do so by understanding that we need to recognize is truth something that is transcendent, in other words, beyond us, or is truth something we find for ourselves? Now, I'm going to take a rabbit trail for a second because I've got a few minutes to do this and tell you how part of the way this is getting played out. If you are interested in this conversation, I'm going to embarrass somebody and have them stand right now. Um, and it, it'll be at the end of the comments so he can muster his courage as he hears the concepts raised around him. But we've been in conversation about how do you know truth in a culture today when you have everything at your fingertips and you can simply Google it, right? Did you know that not everything you Google is truth? I actually read in preparations this week that Abraham Lincoln put up a post that said you can't trust everything you read on the internet. Right? And then once that post is sent, and once it's re repeated, there's things called large language models and algorithms. How am I doing, Jed Anderson? Get your courage up, brother. Right? So what we're looking at is, Jed's dabbled in this. We're going to host, on February the 28th in the evening, a class on how do we pull together the concept of artificial intelligence, which is the, it's just the creation of information, and what's the faith interaction with it. And the guy you want to talk about if you're interested in this, and you want more information, and you want to know what's going on, is Jed Anderson. Stand up over here, Jed Anderson. That's the guy, right? The guy who reads Nietzsche and knows about large language models and artificial intelligence, that's an outlier, right? But here's why I say this, this sliver. In Jed's life, it's like, how do we take technology and make it kneel before the cross? Amen. How do we just not let whatever we search become a truth because it's been repeated and repeated and repeated? 
That's a spiritual gift. It's not even in the message translation, but it's a spiritual gift. And I'm thankful to God for that. So February the 28th, we're going to delve into this area. I have no clue where it's leading, but you know what I know? I know God's got it on Jed's heart. I know Jed's willing to say, hey, let's create some space. Let's talk about surrendering our lives. Let's talk about how do we bring our lives to God to hear the truth of Scripture, to let it guide our lives. Now I want to close with this imagery that not only can you not housebreak Jesus, not only do we need to make everything kneel to the cross, but we need to recognize what does it mean for us to live. Paul knew this struggle that we have. He knew this struggle. There's no surprise here. We're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to read for you Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 in the NIV translation. But I love Eugene Peterson's translation within the Scripture itself. And so we're going to read that. And then I'm going to tell you how I want you to read the prayer and the scripture. So here's what Paul said in Romans, thinking of the challenge that we would have together in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, through the lens of God's mercy, to offer yourselves, your bodies, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Friends, we are in this world, but Paul tells us in Scripture to not be of the world, to not let the world conform you into its image. This is the tension in which we live. This is why I love the Methodist tradition where I say there's elbow room on the pew to have those dynamic conversations to step into these sort of creative and innovative things to say, what does it mean to be a people of faith within this world? Here's the way Eugene Peterson translates that, and we're going to read it together. This is Eugene Peterson's translation of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Let's read together. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around in life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. So what we're going to do is when you read Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, or you read the Wesley Covenant Prayer, I want to encourage you this three-step methodology of how to approach this. We're sharing this campus-wide today about how do we do this. First, when you read through the prayer or you read through the Scripture, the first thing you want to do is read through it to understand what is being said. Right? Just read for the content. Read what the content is. Now, the second time you're going to read through it, read with a mindset to reflect on what it means to you. So you take this content and you internalize and personalize what it means to you. And here's the next step that sort of takes a bit of a twist that helps us to get into allowing us to surrender things. Take that prayer, take that scripture, 
Pray it to God and ask him to grow you in these areas. So if I'm taking this three-step methodology and I'm looking at Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 28, what I'm going to do with that third step is I'm going to say, where in my life have I acknowledged that Christ is Lord? Because there's parts of your life that I have, right? But where is it that I'm censoring God? Where is it that I'm saying, Jesus, hands off? You know, where is it I'm trying to housebreak Jesus some? Where is it in my life? Where is that I'm trying to take control of my life? God, help me to not try to hold on to my life. God, help me to give my life away, to, to lose control of my life for your sake. So that's kind of an example of how that would work. And so you wouldn't just read the text, but you would work to what Bonhoeffer says, to let the text read you. Friends, if we're going to be able to detoxify ourselves in a spiritual way, to have sort of a spiritual cleansing over the next coming weeks, we need to let the Scriptures read us as we read the Scriptures. This is a threefold methodology that we pray will help you to learn what it means to say, all to Jesus I surrender, all to Him I freely give. And then grow in the faith once you've given your life in faith. Let's pray together. God, I pray that for the good news that your Scriptures proclaim, that anything I've said that is encouraging and helpful uh, you or Holy Spirit would let resonate and grow in the hearts of all who have heard this day. I pray if there's anything that has been not clear that your Holy Spirit would clarify. I pray that together we would learn as individuals and a community faith how to give our life to you, how to take our life, to take back control of our life by letting go of our life, by laying at the foot of the cross and letting you be the Lord of all of our life. God, we are grateful for this day of worship and the opportunity to be reminded of your love for us and our response to love you back through our hands, our hearts, and lives. For this we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all of God's people said, 